Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, welcome to the Catfish and Crappie podcast. My name is Mark, and today's guest is Mr. Ted Ellen Becker. How are you doing, Ted? I'm doing good. Good. Awesome, Thanks awesome. everybody for joining in. Cool. For those of you that don't know, or for those of you listening to the podcast, Ted Ellen Becker holds over 48 freshwater line class records. This includes a top eight freshwater, the top eight freshwater species. Real quick before we get started, uh, can you tell us what a, a freshwater line class record is, Ted? Sure. Um, basically, you have special equipment you have to use. You have to have a line that will break within certain parameters, uh, like the 1K line. Uh, I use Andy Tournament Green, which is specifically designed for IGFA line class records to break within a parameter. Um, So the 1K is basically a two-pound line, and you have about three ounces one way or the other. when you catch the fish, there's a lot of things that go on as far as trying to qualify it. Uh, one of the things is the line. You need 50 feet of the line sent into IGFA, and they do three breaks. And the uh, the average break is what, what they'll give the line for credit. And if you don't make that parameter, the fish doesn't count. Uh, it has to be weighed on certified scales, has to be witnessed. Uh, just it's a lot of things, you know, it's not for everybody. I like it. I kind of get bored easy. It gives me something to do. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely understand. It's like my, well, we'll get into the whole flathead thing, but what interests me about what you just said is, so you, you can't go out and buy like a, a spool of four pound test and say, Hey, it's a four pound class record. They actually tell you what pound test the line is, no matter what it says on the package. Right. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, like like there's some people that, you know, I, I have a friend that, that uses a particular line, and I won't mention it, but he likes a 20-pound line, and he says, well, that's the strongest 20-pound line I've ever used. Well, 20-pound <laughs> line should all break equally if it's actually 20-pound line, you know. So, yeah, you have to be careful, you know, if you use, like big game is notorious. It's a good line. I use big game, uh-huh. but, you know, 20-pound line is going to break heavy on you. You know, I mean, it's more like 25-pound line. That, so you have, makes, you have to use a line designed for it. Yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense to me because I've used line that uh, um, was rated at 65 pounds, and I'm hauling in full logs out of current, and I'm thinking yeah. no way that this is 65-pound braid. So, anyways, I want to th- hey, John Euler in the house with a $50 super chat. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate you. Thank you for the super chat. Thank you for being here. Thank you for checking it out. Uh, we did have a question here. I'll get John's super chat back up here, but ask me anything is uh, – AMA is um, – internet slang for ask me anything and and what you do is you get to ask the guest whatever questions you have um and he'll be happy to answer it and i'm going to do these after all my master class um master class um 
uh, podcasts, uh, which I, I really do enjoy dearly. Uh, I really like them. I get uh, exposure. I get to talk to a lot of people that I've looked up, uh, looked up to in the industry, and, and that I admire, and, and I think the, that go above and beyond the um, the, the scope of me being an everyday angler. So uh, I feel privileged to, to have Ted on the show today. And uh, um, if you have any questions, this is the man to ask for a lot of things. The first one comes from from Betty Cross, a couple crosses fishing. She says, how can I get a golden retriever? I need a boat dog. Oh, boy. Uh, just personal message me. I, I got a couple here you can take home with you. <laughs> but that'd be a big check. Uh, it, it, and Sir, you, you get a golden retriever? There's a lot of breeders. Uh, I would go on puppy finds, frankly. Uh, I know people will say, be careful, be careful, but there's a lot of really good, credible people out there that are offering puppies, you know. And, and, and quite honestly, you know, I would require that they have some genetic testing done to them so you don't get in trouble with the pup. You know, make sure you're getting a good, healthy dog. Just ask the questions. Don't be shy. Get a good, you deserve to get a good dog, ask, ask some serious questions. But there's a lot of people out there that have goldens that make good fishing dogs for you. I, it's, it's, I, I, if you're going to spend that kind of money, don't, don't be afraid to ask questions, no matter how, how dumb you feel asking them. Uh, that's one thing that um, I, I have no problem doing. And I think that's made me more informed, whether it's fishing or purchasing, you know, a dog or anything like that. There, there's no shame in it. So uh, I know that uh, Betty adores those goldens. And and I know that you caught her eye when I tagged her in one of your posts, because um, the, the the ones you're uh, uh, breeding right now, they're they're more or less pure. They're hunting dogs or they're breeding stock, correct? Uh, yep. Yeah, these dogs that we are working with right now generally are going to go to basically a show home or, or another breeder trying to okay. improve, you know, trying to improve their stock. So they're like, uh, kind of like the, the, the performance dogs of the dog world, right? Yep. They are. Yep. Cool. They are. Uh, our dogs are all imported out of Europe and uh, the, the stud dog registry over there is a little different than they are here. Uh, you know, the a AKC here in the U S you know, uh, they have certain regulations over in Europe. For a lot of the dogs to be stud dogs, they have to be a champion not only in the show ring, but they have to be a stud or a dog that's a champion out in the work ring, you know, work in the field also. So a little more qualification involved. Yeah, you know. cool, cool. You know, it's 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 kind of cool that you do the same thing. I I did another master class with, with David Weiner um, from uh, – from Iowa and, he, and he's he's a breeder too like in, in that class of uh uh breeding so uh it's kind of, it for you two to have that in common says a, a lot about how you're fishing or how you go about fishing and, and life in general so uh we have a lot of passion for the outdoors whether it's fishing uh hunting or even dogs that go with all of this all fit together let, let me see uh thank you real quick the real gals fish the mississippi she's been a, a um a crew member for three months and i saw that fish and freedom richard uh he says because real gals bacon he's been a member for eight months thank you very much guys we appreciate it so let's see if we got any other questions here before we go off on a dog tangent we'll do that a lot of times what's going on kevin palmetto cats i see ricky over at solo uh uh, text adventures there's Matt that want to be outdoors sorry Matt I don't remember if I caught you or not earlier there's uh Michael Morello over here with Morello family fishing uh he 
broadcasted uh, um, Lauren's first T-ball game. I caught part of that. Uh, that was a good show here. Let's see if I missed anybody else. I saw a question over here somewhere. So uh, here we go. Justin's fishing fetish. Let's see what Justin's questions. Can Ted tell me where to catch uh, a huge flathead on Lake Wiley this week? Now there's an open-ended question. There, yeah. Uh, well, first off, I don't know Lake Wiley, so I, I can't speak about that. But uh, can what do you know what state that's in? Just to start with. Uh, where's Lake Wiley? Is it in a uh, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia? <laughs> okay. Well, you're you're about a month and a half, two months ahead of us. Then I, I would probably look for uh, some in, inflow, incoming water into that lake. Uh, if it's a dam, dammed up lake, I'd be looking for a current flow of some sort. Uh, the fish should be moving up and feeding real heavy right now, actually. It really should. Uh, it should be perfect down there. But but I would try to find current if I can. If I can't, I would be looking for back bays uh, with with the shoulders, mouth of the bays with some cover on them. Uh, the fish are going to start wanting to feed up in the shallows at night this time of year. And they're going to start looking for good cover, and but go with flow if you can find it. That that would be my best advice. But I don't I like, know the rear leg. So. I, I like that saying, go with the flow. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, why, why, why is water, why is flow so important to fish like flathead? Well, it, it helps them hunt, number one. Uh, like, it, you know, below a dam, it, it will position flow or current is probably the biggest positioning element in any body of water. And it's the stronger it is, the more power it has, obviously. Uh, it, it positioned the bait fish is what it does. And the big fish just wait on the sides, wait for the bait fish to come cruising by. You know, it's kind of an ambush thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the little fish just don't do real well in a heavy current. So they're working the edges and that's why, like the current seams, the big fish are in the current seams most of the time. Well, that's where the little fish are pushed to. So current current just positions. It's the biggest positioning factor there is in the body of water. It kind of, I kind of like to look for what I call food conveyor belts when I'm fishing. Yep. You know, if 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 a fish has food wow. to it, um, it, it it's gonna your chances are going to be better. I got something going on in the other room here too. Sorry about that, Ted. <laughs> got a lot of stuff going on. So those are a couple of the things that I look for. Um, and, and you do a lot of seminars, correct? And one of it's what the rules of three, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yep. 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 Theory of three. Yep. Theory of three. And, and how, how do you apply that to flatheads in general? Um, well, for flathead, any species, actually it, we try to put together three elements in, in the body of water. Now, I, here again, I can't tell you what elements you're going to look for because every body of water is different, Mark. You know, some have log jams, some don't. Some have riprap, some don't, et cetera, et cetera. But in every body of water, there's going to be elements that particular fish, particular species are looking for or relating to. And what we found out, while we were chasing some line class records and developing this was that if you can combine three of the elements in a body of water that your species that you're chasing relates to, you, you've got a high percentage, you know, structure to work with because the fish don't necessarily have to move off that structure. If you have the three proper elements, because it's a lot mm -hmm. of the thing you're looking for. Okay. So so 
more often, basically, is what it comes down to. But remember, when you do that, don't just fish one element and then walk away from it. And a lot of people do that. You know, as an example, they'll come up and they'll fish the front of the log jam, as an example. Mm -hmm. Or fish the, the deep side of the channel, you know, at the base of the channel, but not up on the platform. Well, when you pull up to a structure, you don't know what element they're using without trying it, right? Right. But a, lot of people, but a lot of people, since I caught a fish on a log, I'll go up and I'll fish the log and then I'll leave, right? Because, you know, I don't try the other stuff. Well, you're walking away from 66% of an opportunity to get a bite. You're leaving two elements there that, that you didn't try, you know? So you want to present to each element in that structure. And we found that by doing that, well, we just increase our hookups. We increase our bite ratio. Uh, you do more fishing, less moving that way, you know, until, until you find out what they're relating to that day. If you find out that, okay, they're on the logs or they're on the riprap or they're on the current seam, then that's a gimme. You know on the next structure you fish, you want it to include that element, you know, that you're catching on. That just keeps your day going and you're fishing high percentage water that way. It makes, makes total sense to me. Cover all your bases, you know, yep. up your odds by, by fishing all the different scenarios. Um, I have a saying that I, I try all the textbook stuff first. Anything that, that that's in my quote unquote textbook, I'm not saying that it's in any book in general, but like your basic stuff, like some of the stuff you were mentioning. And, and then, you know, if those stuff don't work, either move or you try something else until you figure it out. So, yep. um, so yep. keep it out over here. Um, we have a question from Miss Haley Mai. She says, what's the best temperature to catch any kind of catfish? I've only caught a small channel cat. Hmm. The best temperature? Well, you know, if, if I was going to give you one temperature, I'd say I want 70 to 75 degrees. If I was going to just give you one, you know, one temperature range, I think all three species, the big three, the blue, the channel, and the flathead are all going to be active in that temperature range and probably active most of the day uh, in that temperature range. But, you know, don't, don't stay home just because I said that, because we catch flatheads up here all the way into October, you know. My and, last year was in October. Yeah, and and the channel cats up here, as soon as the ice goes off the lakes, channel cats start biting. So don't stay home just because of that. But the perfect temp, I'd say 70, 75. That's when they're the most active, right, Ted? I mean, they'll, 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 channel cats especially, they'll, they'll bite any time of the year. It's just how fast you can get them to bite and how aggressive they do bite. So, yep. at least that's been my experience. Yep. So hopefully that answered your question, Haley. She's a, a younger lady that's found the channel here for my tournaments, and I'm always happy to see her in here. It always gets it, it. It makes me feel good that we're not only getting somebody that's young into the sport that that uh, is carrying on the traditions of her father. I understand her father has a boat and takes her fishing, but uh, uh, that it happens to be uh, uh, one of the lady anglers, one of the future of uh, definitely uh, future of the sport. Uh, Matt, and we'll get back to that real quick. I want to talk about that later, too. Uh, Matt over at Want to Be Outdoors says, what's Ted's personal best walleye and northern pike? And okay. then he asks, what's his go-to colors for both? Okay. And before you answer that real quick, if you have a question in chat, just like Chris 
put in there. If you could put uh, some sort of special character or a question mark emoji in the front, that'll guarantee that it's easier for me to find. So, again, Matt over at Want to Be Outdoor says, what's your personal best walleye in Northern Pike? Okay, well, for the walleye, I'm going to have to say I believe it was probably eight and a quarter, eight and a half, but we did not scale the fish. So I can't give you a scale weight. Okay. But, but she was right at 28 and a half, 29 inches. That's a she's doozy. A, she's a good sized fish. Uh, Northern Pike's a little right between 18 and 19. He was right at 18 and a half on the scale. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. nice, nice Northern, not up in his twenties, but nice fish. Yeah, and that 30, 30 pound or 30 inches for a walleye, that's like the magic number that everybody's trying right. to It sure is, yeah. It's, yeah. That, that, num- that number 30 haunts anglers. The number 30 for, for channel cats, for walleye, 30 inches, uh, channel cats, 30 pounds. You got 20 inches for uh, uh, for smallmouth. There's there's those numbers. You got three pounds for a, a crop, even though some people catch fours, but they're even more uh, – Hard to come by, so uh, yeah, uh, very cool. Uh, let's see if we got any more questions here before well, we got colors here for this gentleman yet. I'm sorry, you wanted to know colors on this, I guess. Yeah, in the uh, color, you go to colors for, for those. Yeah, well, for northerns, depends on the type of water. If I'm up in Canada fishing tannic, I like hammered gold, uh, like a gold doctor spoon work really good for you. And I found the gold for some reason. Maybe because it uh, imitates a walleye a little better, seems to work the best for spoons. For bucktails, I'm going to go kind of a tan, almost like a small smallmouth bass combination with a gold blade. That would be my favorite color there. Uh, for walleyes, that gets a little more complicated. Uh, I kind of what I call water specific. Uh, if you want just main colors, you want to include. There's two chartreuses, by the way. You have a yellow chartreuse and a green chartreuse, mm-hmm. which is a combination of yellow and green. Which one is heavier? A yellow chartreuse will hold a little more yellow pigment. Green chartreuse will hold a little more green. That is uh, the most visible color to walleyes. So if you're going in murky water or stained water, I would probably go with a yellow or green chartreuse. Okay. If I'm going in clear water, real clean water, then I want to stay a little more natural, kind of like a minnow. Maybe a, a dark back, like a black or a purple back with a white or a pearl white, hopefully, belly, and tipped with a minnow, that kind of thing on a jig. Uh, silver and black, rapalos, that kind of thing, works really well. Um, but, you know, if you get into dark or deep water, uh, purple and pearl white, uh, orange, if you're really confused and you're not sure, go to an orange a light orange will pretty much cover all your bases for a walleye. That's got all those colors of that spectrum in it, right? That's probably why that works. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool stuff. Yeah. And what do you consider deep water where you'd turn to a purple? This is me asking this question. Um, where you start losing light. So it'll kind of depend on uh, the clarity of the water. You know, some water you, you lose all of your light at 15 feet. Some of the water at 30 feet, you know, uh, Crow Lake up in Canada, you don't lose it until 50 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where you start, where you feel like you're starting to lose uh, the light penetration, then I would go to like a purple and a pearl white type thing, you know, 
I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because I was on the Wisconsin River walleye fishing just a few weeks ago, and as soon as we hit that 20-foot water, they quit hitting, 20-foot deep water, they quit hitting on minnows and a jig, and we switched yeah. over to purple plastics because that's what I had, and boom, they started hitting on that, so that yeah. explained a lot yeah. to me, So You start losing the light penetration, and that purple color, for some reason, just comes out for them. Cool. Uh, we got Ricky over at Solo Text Adventures. He says, uh, what is better for bank fishing on a lake uh, during these windy days, upwind or downwind banks? Uh, basically, where do you want the wind blowing when you're fishing a bank is the question, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, well, first off, the windy day, you don't have to fish on a windy day if it was windy the day prior. And, Mark, you've, you've said this before, too. You know, you fish the weather from yesterday yesterday yeah. or even up to three days before yeah. i look i've gotten a habit of looking at the last three days of weather and keeping track in my log when i plan on going fishing which way the weather or the wind's been blowing and what the directions yeah, from. yeah. you know you, you could have a wind uh we'll just say from the south today but if the last two or three days have been out of the northwest you want to really pay attention to that you know because that's going to it takes a while. It takes basically 72 hours for, we'll say, the plankton to move, mm -hmm. and then the shrimp to move, and then to the bait fish to move. It doesn't happen overnight, you know. Mm -hmm. So if you get a prevailing wind for a couple of days in one direction, that's going to put the food on the one side of the lake. So you want to consider that. Even if the wind the day you're fishing is from another direction, take a look at what was happening two or three days prior and, and fish that. Fish that. Wherever the wind was coming in on those days, fish that shore. Definitely. I I, I look at those conditions probably more than I do. Well, I I, I don't want to say that because if, if I'm catfishing these days, it's it's out of a boat. So uh, yeah. bank fishing, if I'm doing my lunchtime bank fishing uh, um, sessions, which I do quite a bit, um, I'm looking at the weather uh, because I'm fishing from bank spots. I want—I usually like fishing into the wind, but only if it's been there the the past, like let's say, at least a day. Um, other than that, I've never had any luck, or it hasn't been, or the wind's blowing in an entirely opposite direction. People say, you know, I always hear this saying: um, "Wind from the east, fish bite least." Have you heard that saying before, Ted? Oh, I've heard it. But, I don't believe it because one of my favorite spots in the world, I need a wind from the east in order for it to be productive. So yeah, to hear that and say, well, I don't believe that so much. So I think that would depend on the body of water, you know, personally. It, it depends what side of the lake the, the creeks, where, where the food's coming from. I'm getting yeah. fresh water out of a creek um, from the west heading, you know, it's, it's flowing easterly into the body of water. Um, it's a big flat coming in. Um, in order to get fish to come up into that flat and get out of the depth, they got to have a reason to do that. And that would be the bait fish, obviously, I'm thinking. And and you're doing just like you're saying, waiting for the plankton to come up, the freshwater shrimp, the bait fish to follow that stuff, and, and so on. So whether it's shad or shiners or whatever, I try to do that. So try to follow that thing. So there's some good tips. So uh, let's see if we got any more questions here. All right, we got a question from Indiana Chris. Uh, do you think barometric pressure has an impact on river fishing? Not as much as on lakes. Um, you know, you've got moving water. A lot of things stay a little more stable, uh, whereas on the on 
a body of still water, like a lake, let's just say the barometer is going to affect it more. Uh, if I had a choice, I would fish a steady barometer all the time. <laughs> but that's just my personal opinion. But, you know, if, if, you know, and I might be off on this one for some people's opinion, but if I can't have a steady barometer, I want a slight fall in the barometer personally. Um, I think the fish get activated by the fronts coming in a little bit. Uh, so yeah, they do. But the rivers, you know, I don't know. River fish are just a lot more stable. Just same with temperature. Um, there's kind of a misconception. I, I get kind of kick at some of the people around here with our smaller rivers. You know, the water is flowing. The water is moving. Um, you know, they'll get a five-degree temperature drop one way or the other. Well, or it heats up a little bit, you know. Well, the fish are going to be deep. Well, if you fill up a sink with, we'll say, cold water, and then you put a little hot water on top, right, if it's sitting still, you can hold your hand in there and you'll feel the temperature change. But go ahead and stir it up. Now the whole thing's the same temperature, and the river's the same way. You know, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to barometers or temperature on rivers. Uh, I, I, I fish literally just structure on rivers, and you know, which includes current. You know, any element on that body of water is what I look for. I don't pay attention really that much on the, on the rivers for the other stuff. I really don't. It, it, it's it's kind of like you – know, you're, it's like constantly mixing your drink you know the ice cube's gonna melt the temperature's gonna level out um th there's a lot of things there's no thermal in in a river yeah. correct me if i'm wrong i don't believe there is unless it's a really really deep well river. unless you got a, a hundred foot hole somewhere <laughs> you know yeah there really isn't no and I, I just don't fish rivers that that would have any water like that let alone you know have yeah. to about it so the only thing i'm going to add something there mark the only thing that i would pay attention to is if you have a, a smaller shallow or medium-sized shallower river and you get into uh like the midsummer and you've had several days at 100 degrees now you're talking oxygen situations at that point if you can get below low head dams or ripples where the water is actually mixing up you will have a higher concentration of oxygen, and that will hold fish. So that's something to think about there a little bit. Aeration has a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, in the dead of summer, I fish a couple of ponds here, uh, just one of them lunch lunchtime fishing sessions here. And uh, um, I'm going to the ones that have aeration or they have a fountain in it. I seem to do a heck of a lot better just for that reason. It's they easier. Yeah, it's easier for the fish to to yeah. breathe when 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 two things, you know that that what doesn't get evaporated gets returned to the water a little cooler. Plus, you know, aerating water is as simple as agitating it, right? Yep. Good way to think about it. So, yep. just like that. you, if you're out of breath, you don't feel like eating a lot, but if you're feeling good, yeah, yeah I could eat. The fish kind of think the same way, so. Yeah. Frank over at Twisted Fishing TV's got a comment to you. He says, uh, the greatest skill to learn is how to read the water. Also, the absolute hardest thing to teach. I, 
I kind of agree with that. Um, I know I used to drive my grandfather crazy when I was young and, and didn't want to listen to him. And he tried to teach me all that stuff and I'm kicking myself. So I guess my tip is for the young people out there listening on the podcast or in chat here to, to listen to the older folks when they're telling you how to fish. If they're telling you to make your bed or eat your vegetables, you don't have to listen to that. Uh, but other than that, if they're telling you how to read water or, or or how to read a river. I'm not going to say lake because I'm not a lake fisherman. I'm a river person. So, uh, um, yeah. to them. but you're absolutely right, Frank. I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, let's see. Fish and Freedom has a comment. He says, my last flathead, my last flathead last year was in December. Water was still 60 degrees, like in cooling plants and stuff. How do those affect fish? Uh, the cooling plants? Yeah. Sure. Anytime you have... Is what it affects basically to start with is the bait fish, uh, like below the power plants and that, the water, you got a warmer water discharge. Uh, the minnows, the suckers, all of that kind of good little food is going to move right into that warm water. And of course, the big fish are going to follow them. So it does affect it. In fact, up here, there's a, down by Sioux City, there's a gentleman that has a secret hole. Um, that's basically that kind of a situation. And a number of years ago, he started catching blue cats up here when nobody else was. And that's exactly the situation he was finding them in early spring and late fall. You know, he had a cold, a cold river, a warm water input, and the bait fish piling up, and a couple of big blues that always just happened to be hanging out there, you know. So makes a difference. It does. Um, I know uh, a lot of guys here in the Midwest, they'll, they'll hit those power plants pretty hard in the winter to get on those big blues and stuff. They'll hit right where the discharges are, and they do really well. Um, they do really, really well. I also know one guy here who's probably listening who got onto a, um, a flathead like right at the beginning of winter, like right when it was stoned, but that was also on a uh, on a lake where the water was constantly 70 degrees in one part of it. So, um I can't see how that fish wouldn't stay active in that kind of water. Um, back to flatheads, do, do they go into that catatonic, almost uh, um, hibernation state um, once a year, or is it just temperature-driven that causes them to do so? Do you know? In my opinion, and at least from some of the research that I've read, it's, it's going to be temperature-driven. Now, that could be some somewhat to do with the solar, you know, with sun, yeah. amount of daylight, amount of evening, mm -hmm. but that goes along with temperature drops also. So, but um, I don't know if they go catatonic necessarily, you know, unconscious, but their metabolism drops to the point I where it pretty much nothing. I, I, I yeah. just had a talk with another angler who's uh, um, been doing this for a while. He's really involved in, in uh, conservation up in your part of the country, up in Minnesota, actually. And uh, um, he had some access to some pretty decent studies that say they actually do. And they, they pretty much don't eat all winter long. Uh, yeah. People say that they bite or whatever. He's a firm believer that they snag. Well, I, I, I tend to believe with them, but you know, not, not general making general statements like that. There's always going to be exceptions to that. I've learned. Well, that. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's very few absolutes in anything, but, but, you know, I've, I've watched uh, some videos and seen some pictures of divers where, you know, these flatheads in the winter, they've actually got a quarter inch of silt on their back. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not moving much, <laughs> you know, they're not very active if they got a quarter inch of mud laying on their back. I, uh, 
was I got bored one day in winter and I'm, I was out scouting for, for walleye and I came across a wintering hole here in, on the Fox river um, by total accident. I'll never go back to that spot again, but they were stacked in there like cordwood and they were barely moving. They were bare yeah. there. And they were, they were, you could see them clear as day. Cause in the winter, the water gets real clear here. It gets really shallow and they were yeah. just laid up under here and now, uh, kind of yeah. freaked out. I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to see this. I'm going to leave now. But it was something cool to see. I've seen a lot of those videos and stuff. And, yeah. and I, I can understand somebody getting one in once, one of them once in a lifetime. But when it comes to someone who's constantly catching them in, you know, Arctic temp or really, really super cold temperatures or in the middle of winter, uh, that they might just know where they're at and they're yeah. across or whatever, whatever they believe. Yeah. Uh, uh, Pontoon Jody has uh, says uh, I caught seven flathead last month, ranging from twenty two to twenty seven pounds on fifty one to fifty four degree water. I'm guessing is what she's saying. Fifty degrees is our magic number here on on my river. Yeah, well, and I'm yeah, well, yeah, fifty. That's fine up here. They'll start feeding. I, I'll go fishing for flathead in fifty degree water. I'm yeah. going to try to put the bait right on their nose. But I would also kind of caution people to pay attention a little bit when they're looking at temperature, because geographically, the starting temperature, if you want to call it that, when they're going to bite, when they're not, can change depending. How do I say it? Okay. If you have a body of water that never drops below 60 degrees, say southern Texas or whatever, you know, southern Florida, Okay, your starting temperature is going to be a little higher than up here just because you never even get down to our starting temperature. <laughs> you know, so you got to got to kind of think about where you are. Yeah, and I know Jody's down on the Tennessee River, so she's a little bit even further south than I am from you. So that could definitely definitely be a case. Uh, also, you know, we did mention or touch on the whole lunar phase and what it has to do with a lot of it. That might have something to do with it too, on whether or not they're active or not. Not, I mean, if if I see a full moon, I'm still going out, Ted. I don't care if I got a chance to go fishing. I'm going fishing, and I've caught fish on full moon nights. So I don't know if I so much believe it or not, or if I hit them on the head. Who knows? Um, I don't think anybody truly knows, or do they? Well, I know that according to IGFA, uh, the International Game Fish Association, they're about 30 per – oh, you still got me? I lost your picture here. No, I still got you. Clear as day. Okay. Um, the IGFA, uh, about 30% of their world records has been caught in a 10-day time span of the full moon five days one side five days the other okay now, is that because more people go fishing then i don't know maybe but fact is there's been more records caught in that time frame so now is that across that 10-day span or is that outside of the 10-day span are you talking no should... in the 10-day span in that 10-day span oh so five, that's... Days, five days prior to the full moon five days after so the that that's interesting yeah. so hmm. yep if you want to pick a time and that's you know if you got one week to go fishing go fishing the week of full moon you know according to igfa uh, my buddy ryan over at setting hooks and crossing eyes says what's a good speed for trolling walleyes i i want to know the answer to this one too okay well that depends on the walleye mood if i'm doing lindy rigs you know like a, a leech type thing or a, or a worm harness, right? Is that the same thing? Uh, that would be a little different. 
different. Uh, I'm doing a Lindy rig, which is just like basically a plain hook, maybe a four or five foot leader and a, a small weight, just enough to keep it on the bottom. Um, yeah. I'm going to go probably 0.5 to 0.8. Now, if I'm going to go to a crawler harness, okay, or a spinner with a minnow, that type of thing, I'm going to bump it up to about a mile and a half. You know, okay. mile, mile and a half, mile and three quarter. Yep. You want the blade spinning. And if you get the blade spinning properly, you're using a bottom bouncer with this. Mm -hmm. uh, blade spinning properly, it'll actually give your uh, harness a lift and it'll hold that harness up off the bottom about a foot while you're moving. Um, if I'm going to go plugs anywhere from, well, depends on the plug and the depth, but anywhere from a mile an hour up to three miles an hour if, if they're really active. Or if I'm targeting big fish, you know, I just want a big walleye. I'm going to run two and a half, three miles an hour. Making I'm getting into the walleye game. So my, my, mine is any walleye. That's what I target. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Get them on the end. So it's been kind of cool. You know, I've, I, I learned one thing that I've overcomplicated things in the past and I got to fish with a young gentleman who says, Mark, you're thinking too much, just fish. I'm like, all right. And there we go. We've had a whole bunch of them in a boat. That was a good day. Anyways, that was me sidetracking here. Um, hopefully that answers your question, Ryan. Um, Creole catfish and ass in a high, fast, trashy river situation with big yellow cats hunkered down in their home and Will big yellow cat hunker down in their home and wait it out, or could they move locations? Okay. Yellow cat being a flathead, he's from Louisiana. He calls him yellow cat, so I figure I need to do a little translation here. Okay. If you've got a high current flow, we'll say like a rising water, I think is what he's, he's talking. He's talking Mississippi or the Atchafalaya. So he's yeah, talking. And you, got, and you got some trash in the water because it's pulling in off the banks. It's come up on the banks. It's pulling some branches in, whatever. Yeah, the flatheads will still move, but fish tight to the bank. The dirtier the water and the more junk in the water, the tighter to the bank channels, blues, and flats are going to hold. It's just the way it is. People don't do it. They always try to cast out the middle of the river. A couple things go wrong there. Number one, the more line you got out, the more junk you're going to hook up on your line. And number two, the fish are going to pull tight to the banks. So, just yes, they'll move, but they're going to be totally different than they would in a normal water flow. They're going to be really tight to the bank. They might be right under your feet, believe it or not. So you could take advantage of those situations by, you know, almost like in a drought type situation where they're more concentrated to a smaller area, right? Oh, absolutely. Yep. They don't want to fight that. They don't want to get hit in the head by branches and junk and grass and everything. And the bank actually gives, you know, any river situation the closer you are to the bottom, the less current. That's just the way it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Up top is going to be your faster current. Up right against the bottom is going to be your slowest current. If you add the bank to it, it slows that river down for them. Okay. It gives them some cover and they know where they're at. You know, they will move right up the banks. And that's all three of the big cats. So that's a big mistake a lot of people make, though. They always think they got to go out in the middle of the river. And that's not right. The bank is your biggest elements in that river. Use it. You know, there's that saying that, you know, boat fishermen cast towards the bank and bank fishermen cast away from it. Yep. Well, here's a question. Where do most of the people with limb lines and all this 
catch your big fish. Oh, right, right on the edges, right on the, right, 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 the bank. On, right on the banks. See, that's where they're hunting. Mm -hmm. That that's where they are. But I don't know. They, people just don't teach that, I guess. But that that's the deal. Cool. A uh, look lady has a comment. He says, uh, I've caught two 30 inches in my teens and in the nineties on late, uh, in my teens in the nineties on Lake Erie, Lake Erie has got a lot of good fish, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Let's see what other questions we got here. Here's here's just a question for me. Wait a minute. Did Mark get a bait cooler? Is it new or did I just not? Actually, I, I, I took a ride over to the Dockery residence and I, I kind of stole it from him. No, I, I've had this for a while. I just haven't had it in my office. Thanks for noticing, by the way. Got to fill it up. I saw a question here. Let's see. Uh, oh, they're arguing about what to call him. Somebody's saying flathead, not yellow. <laughs> yellow bellies. They always do that to me, Ted. Uh Yeah, how does there? We got some uh, discussion in here about the size of the waters. How does size of water um, uh, change the way you should target fish? It just doesn't mean big fish. It it, it means a lot. It, it's a lot bigger of a haystack to find that needle, isn't it? Um. Yeah. Well, obviously, the more water you have, the more area you have for them to go. Um, so it just becomes more important to focus on areas that have the elements your fish are looking for. You can eliminate probably 90% of any body of water if you really put your mind to it and just try to figure out where the fish will be because of what's available in the water. Um, it's kind of like fishing where a lot of people dive into the deep water in the lake, you know. Well, if you think about it in a lake, you know, thermal cline and the deep water fish aren't going to be there. Uh, how many weed beds do you have in the deepest water? None. You know, usually the deepest water is silted in. Um, there's always fish shallow. I would start mid-depth on any lake. Mm -hmm. uh, by that, I mean, say it's 50 feet deep. If I don't know the lake and I don't know anything about it, I have no information, I'll probably start at 20, 25 foot and be looking for structures that will hold the fish I'm looking for in the mid-depth. And if I don't find them in the mid-depth, I'm going to go to the shallower water because, believe it or not, there are always some fish shallow. The bait fish could very well be in the shallower water, right? Yep. That's where the weed beds are along the weed lines, the trees that have fallen in and off the banks, the riprap that's been pushed in, the docks, you know, just everything. There's always more elements in the shallower water than there are in the deeper water. So you're going to hold more fish. Cool. Sean Chili has a question. We're going to touch base on barometric pressure again. He says, does barometric pressure lose its effect on fish once you hit a certain depth of water, 20 foot, 30 foot? Hmm. Imagine we're talking about a lake. Yeah. Does it, does it lose its effect? Mm -hmm. um, well, Kind of, that's why fish change depths. Uh, you know, the water pressure itself, uh, like their swim bladders that are involved, that's how fish judge the pressures. And so they will adjust according to the barometric pressure. So yeah, depth can make a difference uh, with the barometric pressure and the pressure on the fish, yes. Okay. 
Uh, here we go. Miss Haley Mize with another question. She says, my dad, North Fork Outdoors, has a question. I know fishing gets slow from late May uh, to mid-July because of spawn. Uh, but what is the water temperature that usually starts the spawn? What can I look for? For what? For which species? Catfish. We, I believe they're a catfishing family. So I'm going to say, uh, but whether well, channel, flathead, and blue, they all spawn at different times, don't they? Yeah, they do. That that's that's where I'm kind of getting at. Um, the flatheads are going to go a little later. Uh, Seventy. Well. Okay, water temps for spawning, you're going to go 70 to 80 degrees is where everybody's going to start kicking in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the channels are going to go earlier, the blues and then the flats with the hotter water, frankly. So, so she wants to know what temperature? It's a, de- yeah. It, 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 now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it doesn't just have to do with temperature. It has to do, obviously, with lunar phase, right? The amount of yeah. days. Right? Yeah, and, and and all the fish do not spawn at the same time. No. I mean, even the same species do not spawn. There's always some fish that will, will bite. Yeah, um, I'm always catching it. I know spawns happening when I, my size goes down dramatically in flatheads. Yep. In the big I will catch a five six seven pound flathead all year until they're in full spawn when i quit catching the the 15s the 30s that's when i'm pretty sure they're in spawn so yeah yep. that's yep. what i look for that's when i that's when i change it up to, to some other kind of <laughs> this year we're going to try for for some summer smallies we're going to change it up when that happens so i'll leave them rust and, and not wear them out so hopefully that answers your question haley uh fly guru says uh long short but the rivers i fish in late spring early summer flood and rise five to seven feet uh the swamps then flood and the fish scatter uh where should i focus my efforts to find channel catfish he's in florida i believe okay so is he dealing with tide or is he dealing with actual floods i don't know he mentions flood here and there um Okay. Well, in rising water, the channel cats are going to go to the shore. That's all there is to it. They will. And uh, there's some research been done on channels, just so you're aware. Um, and this is a mistake a lot of people make with channels. Maybe this will help you. I hope it does. A lot of people think during the day for channels, you want to be way out in the mid-channel, right? I mean, you that kind of thing. You don't. They've, they've tracked these fish. And a channel cat during the day will spend more time closer to the bank than the main channel, regardless of the weather. They just do. Okay. If you're talking midsummer, they're going to go more towards a clay bank. Okay. Spring and fall, a channel is going to go for the riprap. Okay. Mm-hmm. And winter, they're going to go for mud. That's the as- type of sub- substrate you're going to be looking for that will hold more fish. During the day, they're going to be tighter to the bank than the main channel. They, at night, they use the main channel to travel and to go hunt. Okay? So right. they move them up. Uh, but during the day, they're not. They're off the side of that big, heavy current. So yeah, I hope that. And if you have a flood situation, they're going to be even further away from the main channel during the day. Learn how to read your electronics so you know what kind of bottom you're over. That's yep. my piece of advice yeah. there. So. 
cool. Indiana Chris got another question. He says, uh, do you target coves or creeks on a river in early spring or mainly cove cover and or mainly cover slash structure? In the spring. Um, if I'm fishing a cr- in, in the rivers, I want something that's going to stop the fish uh, because they're moving real hard. Mm-hmm. Channel cats will move a lot. Flatheads will move. Well, up to like 25 miles if they're a big fish. Blues will move a lot. Um, something that stops the fish, a low head dam. Uh, it can even be just a, a ripple with a, you know, with a current break coming down off the top. But something that stops their upward movement um, is what I would look for in the spring because that's going to concentrate fish. They're going to come up and they're going to pull up under those things. And the log jams, I don't worry about until – you know, up here until middle of June, July, and then I start hitting log jams. Gotcha. So cool. Good to know. I'll have to use that advice. So Ricky over at Slow Tech Adventures says, maybe a silly question, uh, but so is what they call a shad kill uh, die, is that due to thermocline? Actually, actually, shad will just stun out with, with uh, sudden changes in water temp or too cold water uh it doesn't necessarily have to do with thermocline at all it's it's the actual water temp on the shad that'll kill them out or a sudden change in the water changing it okay they're very fragile that way shad are and anybody that's tried to keep them live for bait knows if it's not it's possible but it's not easy to do Right. Yep. Definitely. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the weekend angler, Josh says, is there any situation in which you'd be mobile, uh, drift or drag for flatheads, or do you solely use a stationary anchored presentation? Uh, no, actually I have one place I do drift for flats, but it takes, it takes a special situation, obviously because they like cover. Uh, the, the one place I'm not going to tell you the name of the lake, but it, it's a flood. It's a man-made lake, so it's flooded. And in this one area, there's about 25 foot of water, and there's a lot of old tree stumps where they actually went in and they took the trees out for lumber or firewood or something mm-hmm. before they dammed up the reservoir. So there's a lot of just three, like two and a half, three foot tree stumps standing up off the bottom in 25 foot of water. It's like a big stump field, and you can drift through there. If, if you just move nice and slow and use kind of a Carolina rig with a float on it, you know, a little bit just to keep the keep bait a little bit up off the bottom. And I'll drift through that stuff all the time, and, and it works really well. Trying to drift, obviously, around regular normal log jams uh, gets a little tough. Yeah, it gets hard. We got, we got one spot of the river here where it's just a mess under there, and I can tell because I can't drift. I can't drag a bait through there for the life of me. Yeah. Anchor up, I can get on them in that spot. One thing you can do um, is anchor the boat and then send a, a slip bobber through on the edge. You know, if you can adjust your depth to keep mm-hmm. your bait a foot off the bottom or so and let it drift down through you can kind of keep a straight line going that way and and just run the fringe of the cover and that works really good too we do that up here on the low head downs quite a bit yeah i so, tell everybody i'm a big kid i love bobber fishing probably it's my one of my favorite one especially when you're bobber fishing for big fish whether yeah. it's whether it's pike or, or flathead or or even channel cats it's always a good time i really get a kick out of it something about seeing that float go under that really gets your your heart pumping and kind of 
brings you back to when I was a young lad a long time ago. You wouldn't know anything about that, though. You're a young man, Ted. No. Let's see. Uh, all right. Uh, James says, Ted, do you know of people catching flatheads with artificial bait? Yes. Um, not often, but I have. I've caught them on lazy ikes quite a bit below the dams on a small river up here. Um, fishing for walleyes, actually, but I, flatheads will hit them. Sure. It's a vibration. Uh, as long as they, they think it's it's a fish, you know, swimming, they'll hit it. They're pretty we have washouts right at the spill, a couple of these smaller spillways here. They're pretty much the, the overflow. Uh, what is it called? It's not a dam where the water just spills over. I, I don't know what the right terminology is from it. But there's a washout hole at the bottom. And, and I know a gentleman will get in there with some waders and just take a crankbait and yo-yo it right in that hole until he gets a flathead. And he always pulls one out of there. Sure. Freaking time. Yeah, he does. He's pretty good at that. Uh, let's see what Luke says. What's going on, Luke? How you doing, bud? I think barometric pressure makes a lot less difference on moving water than in no flow. Yep, I believe we covered that, but I agree with you there. Wouldn't you, Ted? No, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, I don't think the pressure, unless, yeah, unless it's just incredibly drastic, I don't think on a river it's going to affect the fish an awful lot. Okay. Yeah, and uh, uh, Fly Guru Chronicles is confirming that actual flood water not uh, not tied, not tied. Correct. Okay. Hey, what's going on, Sampy? How you doing? Uh, okay, I'm going through. We got another question from Chris. Chris says, uh, "Have you ever used uh, bait walkers like the Gappin? I'm not quite sure what that is. I use Gappin, yeah, for yep. while, uh, using a leader and floating jig head. Yep." Sure. It's just kind of a form of a bottom bouncer. It's a form uh, you know, of With a spinner blade on the upper arm also to kind of help lift it and create some vibration. He, he fished cat, Dan Gape and fished catfish with those quite a bit. That's what they're, he originally developed them for. Mm -hmm. They'll work on anything. My buddy Lee over at Uncle Bait and Tackle says, uh, do you do much on Lewis and Clark Springfield or the lower James around Yankton? Looking for flatties is his question. Well, <laughs> well, you want my GPS? <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, I don't do a lot on Springfield, but but the Lower Jim River is a, a really great section of river. Uh, the closer you get to the Missouri River, the bigger fish you're going to find, and you can find some big blues down on that river too. Okay, so you're saying out of all of those, Lower James would be your choice? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Number one, because it's easier to fish, uh -huh. you know, um, and, and the type of structure that is in that lower area, it's actually a, a pretty deep body of water when you get down to the southern third of it. There, there's some good holes. Now, by good holes, I'm talking, you know, 20, 25 feet, but that's a pretty good hole in a small river, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, yeah, if I was going to pick – my favorite flathead water in South Dakota would be the southern third of the Jim River. Cool. Very cool. Uh, I want to thank uh, HS Outdoors Adventures for the $5 super chat. I appreciate the support, my friend. Says I won't be on next week. I'll be asleep because I have to be up at 2 a.m. on Tuesday. But I'll be here in spirit. Keep up the good work. Hopefully you're getting up in the morning, uh, getting up in the morning to go fishing. So uh, let's see. And yeah, Frank says, "Ask me anything. Drop them coordinates." 
Cool. I think we got all the questions answered. Uh, I think they're uh, done asking, so I appreciate it. Uh, I am very grateful for your time. I know everybody in chat's grateful to see you here. We still got 70 people in chat, which is a good sign. So uh, uh, thank you, Ted. Is there anything you want to plug? You got anything coming up? Um, well, yeah, real quick. I got a, a new seminar that I'm going to be working on and a new video that we're going to be working on for Amazon, and it has to do with fish and log jams. Mm-hmm. Um, we call it slipping timber, and there's two presentations involved. One is slipping timber, and the other is ambushing. And uh, we show how to use it as a system when you get on a small or medium river, and you're going to spend the day. And it, while you're doing that, you're looking for a place to spend the evening. And so that's going to be kind of a good one. I wrote a wrote a story about that about 20 years ago, and then I kind of forgot about it, and it came up again. And I thought, God, that'd make a great video. So. That's coming up this summer. Cool. I look forward to seeing that. When you get that out, let me know, and we'll make sure we'll post links to that for you as well. Uh, you. you know, I, I, I love hearing from you, Ted. So thank you again. Uh, I want to remind everybody uh, that if you haven't hit the thumbs up, please do. Uh, if you're listening to us on the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you followed us. Uh, also, I'll remind everybody that Josh over the Weekend Angler has his biggest loser this Saturday. Also, uh, Chad from Fields to Water is doing his fundraiser uh, for Camp Centurion on Saturday. So check out the Fields and Water uh, YouTube channel. We want to make sure we raise a lot of money for those veterans. Uh, it's a really good cause. Uh, I know Uncle Josh over at One Ton Fishing Club donated a, a knife that's going to go up for auction. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of donations and a lot of cool stuff. So uh, uh, let's say good night to everybody. I want to say good night to everybody. Thank you again. Thank you for the super chats. You guys are awesome. Thank you for all your support. And most of all, and thank you again, Ted. I appreciate you, my friend. Well, thank anything, you. Thank you. Thank you. Have, thanks, know. everybody, for joining us. Wonderful. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>